Hey, everybody. Welcome back for season two of the Broken Banquet podcast. This season, we've got more interviews with missionaries around the world, more interviews with authors who have written amazing books about missions, and more conversations about what it means for us to abide with one another. And yes, probably a story or two about Ashley taking a walk, eating food, or having drinks with someone who she now loves. We're so glad you're back. We're glad to be back. And we hope that you will enjoy this episode. Hey, Ashley. Hey, Will. How are you? Happy New Year! New Year? How are you? How are things in Shreveport? You know, things are fine now. But you know when we recorded the Christmas episode... I was so excited about so many things that were getting ready to happen. Christmas Eve, I was finally going to get to preach. And you know how much I love a Christmas Eve candlelight service. And there were three of those. And I was so excited about flying on Christmas Day over to North Carolina and seeing my family and going on a hometown pilgrimage with Mac and with Chris. And none of that happened. What? I know. I got the flu. Uh, I had a fever over 101 for six days. Six oh days. Gosh. I know. Like, what adult does that happen to? Yeah, really. <laughs> but I'm fine now. Thankfully, we were able to go to North Carolina to at least see the North Carolina basketball game. Mm-hmm. So we got to go to the basketball museum and all of the Mecca-like things. And mm-hmm. we did get to see my mom and we did get to see my dad and my brother. So... At least we salvaged three days' worth of the trip. Well, I'm sorry that it wasn't the Christmas that you were hoping for, but I am glad that you got to feeling better and were able to do those things. Thanks. Thanks, friend. Thanks. How was your Christmas? How was the farm? Well, before we get to that, I know you were really anticipating Mac's first Christmas in the United States. How did it go? It was really great. It was really, really great. He, he loved all the decorations. In Winston-Salem, they have this big um, festival of lights. So we got to drive through the festival of lights in Tanglewood and just had a really great time. And I think he loved North Carolina as much as I do. So um, it was good. Awesome. Well, we just got back from the farm yesterday <laughs> and uh, it was wonderful. It was super quiet, except for the you know the howler monkeys that wake us up sometimes early in the morning. But mm-hmm. uh, you know we're at a point now where we actually could have electricity and internet and all those kinds of things at the farm. But I'm kind of hoping we just never do because <laughs> it's it's so nice to be able to just disconnect from everything. And you know we go to bed when it gets dark and we get up when it gets light and we swam in the river and we swam in the ocean and we swam in a pool and we spent time with Yolanda's family and we could hear the echoes of fireworks in other places that people were setting off, you know, at midnight on New Year's Eve um, because the farm is in the mountains. And so it just the booms echo from mountain to mountain. So all of it was great. Um, we rested well and now we're back home and uh, today we've been really busy just getting the wheels turning again and we've got our first team of 2024 coming on the 13th Woo-hoo. so we're starting yeah starting to get everything ready for them we're starting a new construction project on the 15th so wow uh, 
yeah, the wheels are turning and we're ready to ready to get moving. You really are back in the saddling. And, and you know, I always kid you about uh, if you weren't married, that you would be in a monastery somewhere just reading and praying all day long. Mm-hmm. So I think of the farm as your little monastery. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It's kind of like being cloistered away from all the noise, and uh, I'm very happy there. I'm also happy to have a family, but of course, um, yeah. but yeah, that alternative doesn't sound too terrible either. <laughs> well, did y'all make any New Year's resolutions? You know, I'm just not a big New Year's resolution <laughs> guy. I don't know. I've just never. It's just never really resonated with me. However. Mm-hmm. Um, I've started reading, per John Woodward's recommendation, uh, The Patient Ferment. Um, mm, sounds uh, like a page turner. Yeah, the, right. I know it's everybody's lining up to, to buy this book. The full title is The Patient Ferment of the Early Church. And it's just about how the heck did it grow from 12 disciples to you know, be, being the church of the empire in basically 300 years. And so- oh, yeah enjoy that so in year 256 okay bishop cyprian wrote this beloved brethren we are philosophers not in words but in deeds we exhibit our wisdom not by our dress but by truth we know virtues by their practice rather than through boasting of them we do not speak great things but we live them and i read that on January 1st, Yolanda and I got into really neat rhythm of getting up about 5.30 every morning and uh, just sitting outside and reading as the sun was coming up. And that was what I read on New Year's Day morning and thought, well, maybe that would be just kind of what I try and focus on Mm -hmm. this year is just living my life in such a way that I don't have to be banging on a drum. I don't have to be screaming at the top of my lungs. I can just live in such a way that will make people notice and wonder and ask and um so you know Hmm. two thousand years later uh bishop cyprian kind of i think hit the hit the nail on the head well i already think you do all of those things so very (laughs) well will but i will look forward to 2024 and seeing you just knock this out of the park well let's hope so you got a word for the year? You know, I, I went back and forth between a couple. One was breathe because I feel like I just haven't been breathing enough lately. Uh, taking a deep breath. I've just been go, 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 go. <clears throat> but then I really uh, I really hunkered in on... Hunkered in? Is that a word? Hunkered no, in? <laughs> you settled in or you hunkered down. But you don't... And you could settle down, but you don't hunker in. Did you get that Um, list of mixed metaphors I sent you? It was was perfect. It's just you. (laughs) Well, I settled in on the word um, simplicity Mm. because I think that over the past, especially six months, things have just been so busy, so chaotic. I've lost the the gift and the joy of simple living, uh, of just simplicity. Um, And I want to get back to that of, of, really settling in on loving God, loving my family, loving others really well, and just getting back to that simple call from Jesus. So um, simplicity is my word for the year. Awesome. Well, I think you also do those things well, but doing it in a way that is simplistic and healthy is yeah. good. 
to hear that that's what you're focusing on. I just finished reading uh, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. Oh, it's so good. Yeah, there was a lot of highlighting that was done in that book. But there's, gosh, there's just so much good stuff in there about kind of eliminating all the things that are totally unnecessary and distract us from the things that are. Mm -hmm. And the result of doing that is simplicity. So, oh, John Mark Comer, he is good. He has a new book coming out soon, too. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, speaking of good books. Oh, seamless transition there, my friend. (laughs) You want to tell folks who our interview is with today? We were interviewing someone earlier in the year, and you said to me, okay, Ashley, well, I bet you can't get the author of my all-time favorite mission book. And I said, oh, oh, my friend, challenge accepted. So I went on a journey to find Sherwood Lingenfelter, who is the author of Ministering Cross-Culturally. Mm-hmm. And do you know, he answered me within like a minute of my email to him. So he must have been so excited to hear from us at the Broken Banquet. I'm sure it's because the email came from you and not from me. But anyway. <laughs> I am approachable. Mm-hmm. So uh, he said that he would love to be on the podcast. And we had a glorious time interviewing him and getting into the nitty gritty of his book, all of the wonderful Uh, nuggets and details of that book. So we encourage all of our listeners to pick it up. I'll have a link in the show notes. And friends, we can't wait for to introduce you to our favorite author, Sherwood Lingenfelter. Happy New Year, Ashley. Happy New Year, Will. Hello, Ashley. Hello, Will Bailey. How are you today? I'm good. How are you? Just finished watching a sunset over the Adriatic Sea. Couldn't be much better. Yeah, I wonder how many of our listeners will be able to say that today. (laughs) Probably none. (laughs) Well, Ashley, as you know, the two of us have both been pleasantly surprised since, since we started reaching out to people about being on the Broken Banquet with us. The folks that we have gotten to talk to have just been incredible. And, you know, we've gotten to talk to missionaries who are serving full-time in the mission field. We've gotten to talk to church workers who are doing different things and connected to missions in different ways in their local churches. We've gotten to talk to some, some authors who have written some really important books regarding missions. And I, I, I'm going to fanboy for a minute here. I've, you know, I've, I've resisted doing this, but I just, our guest today, holy cow. I don't know how you do this, Ashley, but the folks that you talk into being on the Broken Banquet, I'm just, I'm amazed. Well, the last thing you said to me after we talked to Brian Fickert, we got off the interview with him and he said, okay, Ashley, fine. Now see if you can get Sherwood Lingenfelter, my favorite book that I've ever read on missions. And I said, challenge accepted. Dr. (laughs) Sherwood Lingenfelter, welcome to the Broken Banquet podcast. Thank you, Ashley. It's a privilege to be with you today. And I look forward to our conversation. Me too. Thank you for answering my email and for being, I mean, you were very quick to respond. I'm just so thankful that God has put us together because you were probably, after Dwayne Elmer, the most quoted author in the dissertation that I wrote for my doctorate. So thank you. 
Wow. Well, congratulations to you in completing your doctorate. That's excellent. Thank you. I'm, I'm sorry that you had to quote me in it, but that's okay. <laughs> It was wonderful. You taught me so much through a book called Ministering Cross-Culturally. And um, thankfully, I, I believe that's Will's favorite book on missions, if I'm not speaking out of turn. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to try and pull myself together here. And, and I just want to give you some context. So several years ago, there were a, a number of books that came out that were really important books. They needed to be written, but they were hard for me as I've been in the mission field full-time for 20 years, I'm very involved with a lot of churches in the United States who send short-term mission teams to partner with us in Costa Rica. And a lot of those books, I just, they were hard for me to read because they were extremely critical of what they were calling volunteerism and things like that. And then, and there was even, I remember an, an email that kind of went viral uh, a few years ago that had been written by a, a young person who had signed up to go volunteer somewhere in the developing world, had spent a month or two in whatever context it was, went home, just completely turned off to anything related to short-term missions. It was a very well-written email and it kind of circulated through church circles. And I remember reading this stuff thinking, people are just going to hate us <laughs> because they don't really understand what it is that we're trying to do that's so different from these things that are being criticized. And I was talking to a friend of mine who is also a missionary in Central America and just really lamenting this mood that was, that was circulating around missions and short-term missions specifically. And he said, you need to read Ministering Cross-Culturally. So I got a copy of it and I'm really, I'm not exaggerating. It really started sort of a healing process for me and breathed new life into how hopeful I was about what it is that we're trying to do here. And as a tool that I have constantly recommended to people, I have a reading list that I send to our partner churches when they're starting to prepare whoever is the next group that's going to come to Costa Rica. And I don't know how many of them actually read the things that are on this list, but ministering cross-culturally is the number one book on that list. It's so accessible. I love the practical examples and stories that you tell in this book. It's not just an academic book about missions. It's really entertaining. It's fun to read and kind of imagine these situations that you personally got yourself into and the lessons that you learn from that. It's just so relatable. And I'm so thankful for that because what I hope will happen is that as when I read it, the people that I'm recommending it to will sort of be able to see themselves in those stories, but also learn the same things that you learn from them. So I just want to say thank you so much for, for taking the time to put your experiences out there like you have done. And I just can't believe that I'm actually on a video call with you right now. <laughs> thank you for being here. I'm, I'm delighted that you found the book helpful. Uh, you know, I really look back on this book. It, it evolved over a period of time. And uh, one of the things that I can say is that the very first editor I had for it made sure it was readable. He basically pushed me and pushed me and pushed me to get rid of all the academic jargon and to really make it accessible to readers. And so uh, because I come from an academic background, I tend to sometimes speak uh, academic ease. But... Uh, this editor at Baker Bookhouse was just phenomenal. And uh, then over the years, one of the things that I realized was that 
the people that really found this book most helpful were people like yourself, people who were working with missions, working in short-term ministries. And so I thought, you know, I don't have enough about short-term ministry in this book. And so in the last edition, I really corrected that. I basically began to share stories that were really relevant to doing short-term mission because you have people that are coming with so little preparation. And, and I decided this book could be a tool that could be used for that. So it's so gratifying to hear that, that it worked, that you have found it that way, and that uh, these stories are really relevant to the people that you're trying to serve. So I give yeah. God the glory for that. Amen. I mean, it was like, it was like someone tossed me a, a life raft, really, at that time, and just helped me really rethink a lot and gave me confidence to keep trying to help people think differently about missions. And here we are now, years later, this podcast is part of that same process. I mean, one of the things that Ashley and I want to do is help people have conversations where at the end of the conversation, maybe they think about missions, missional relationships, or church in general in a different way. And so uh, thank you for that. Will you will you tell our listeners who aren't familiar with who Dr. Sherwood Lingenfelter is, just tell us a little bit about yourself? Well, I actually am a social anthropologist. I went into anthropology because God moved me when I was an undergraduate many years ago to uh, study culture. The professor I had was a man by the name of David Winter, and David really confronted us all as undergraduates and said, you know, you really can't do mission well unless you learn about the cultures that you're going to, that you have to have an understanding of culture if you're going to be effective as God's servant in other contexts. And so I caught that vision from him, and I decided to go and study social anthropology. Uh, one of the critical things in my journey that was so helpful to me was when I met another man who was a Christian anthropologist by the name of Marvin Mayers. And if you notice, the book is co-authored with him. Now, the reason I co-authored it with him is because I stole so many of his ideas. <laughs> and I realized that, okay, I, I couldn't write this book by quoting him on every page, so the best thing to do was put him on the cover. And uh, he agreed to that. We're friends. And so he said, sure, sure would. Uh, he said, uh, you've done wonderful things with my ideas, but I, and, and I'm so happy to have this uh, co-author with you. He also was published more than I was, so this gave me an opportunity with somebody's name who was known and mine wasn't uh, to basically get a book in publication. Now, Mayers is the one who came up with the ideas of the key basic ideas of the book, time and event, crisis, non-crisis, mm -hmm. task and person, the kinds of things that so oftentimes create conflict for us. And so it was this framework from Marv that really uh, I found so helpful in teaching undergraduates when I was on the faculty at Biola University. And uh, as I used these tools in the class, students resonated with them. They could understand them. And so that's where I came up with the idea of writing this book. I guess I would say also the stories that you have in the book, particularly the stories of my South Pacific Island experience, came actually from missionaries who I was working with in those place, in that, uh, those islands. And um, they were asking me, can you help us with this challenge we have? We don't understand what's going on here. We don't know why we're having such conflict with the local people. Mayor's ideas were so helpful to me. And so as we began to process this together, 
we all learn something very significant about culture and mission and how to communicate effectively with people, and most of all, how to be able to share Christ with them. So that's kind of the story of how the book was born and, um, and where the ideas came from and why it became a passion for me. I appreciated especially the work you did on time because I think that that was the one thing that I could not, it, nothing would ever click. I couldn't understand why there was so much conflict in Haiti between the teams I would have in from the U.S. and the Haitian people. And when we have finally read your work about time and monochronistic time versus um, polychronistic time, I was like, Oh, for goodness sakes, of course, that's what this is. We're so we're so on top of things as a Western culture. We have to go, go, go. Efficiency is so important. Forget the relationship. Let's just get done what we have to get done. Project based. Let's go. And it finally clicked that that's not what the rest of the world is about. And even this week, I'm sitting in a house in Montenegro, and I'm with our, our Russian missionaries, and I'm with our Romanian missionaries. And there is no sense of time in this house at all this week, which is why I was late for interviews all day today. So it, it was amazing how that just little piece of knowledge completely changed my mindset of being able to relate to other people. You know, actually, this insight is one that I struggled with, too, when I first went to this little island in the Pacific. I mean, they would tell me, okay, this is going to start at 2 o'clock. I would show up at 2 o'clock, and there was no one there, virtually no one. I, I had a two-year-old girl at the time, and my wife was there, and we said, well, what are we doing here? There's nobody here. And of course, nothing started until around four o'clock. Well, after a while, I said, okay, I'm going to show up at four when they say two. Well, even then it didn't start at four. <laughs> what I had to learn was that time was really incredibly flexible to them. Mm -hmm. And you know, biblically, we've converted time in our culture to what we want. But in fact, the time that Jesus worked by was very much like Micronesian time or like what you're experiencing with the Russians and the Slovaks. Uh, you know, it's it's very casual, and uh, they're not driven by this time pressure that's so important to us. So That's probably the conversation that I have most often with people who come here to be with us in Costa Rica is about that difference in time-focused culture and event-focused culture, and even personally. So my wife Sherwood is from Costa Rica. And when we were recently married, I remember a Sunday morning that we get up, we're getting ready to go to church. Church starts at 930. So at 915, I'm dressed and ready. And I, I made the mistake and I've only made this one. Well, we've been married for 20 years now. And it's the only time in 20 years I've made this mistake. I went out and started the car. <laughs> she was not ready for church or for the car to be running. And we got to church at 9.35, 9.40, and I'm losing my mind because I am who I am. And we were still the first ones there. So that was the lesson. I, I learned two lessons. That was a very important Sunday morning for me. I learned First of all, I learned never to go out and start the car before my wife is ready to leave. And two, being what is on time in my mind is different from being what is on time 
here. So I could totally relate. And the story that you use in the book about the worship service, I think in, in Palau, is that right? Yeah, Where sure. the service was going on and hadn't finished on time. And so this European missionary goes and starts ringing the bell of the church. And I, oh my gosh, I was mortified. And I hope everyone who reads that is just as mortified, even though we realize to some degree, like that's us. Maybe that's why we're mortified. Exactly. We're mortified for the local church, but also when we realize, oh my gosh, how many times have I rung that bell? I have to confess to you that in spite of all of my experience living and working overseas, I'm still time conscious. I know. I know. <laughs> and, you know, it's so, so wired in us. It's such a part of our upbringing. It's a part of how we've lived for so long. And, uh, you know, it's it's one of those things I can be casual about it and I can just say forget it. But inside, I'm thinking, okay, it's supposed to start at this particular time. Mm -hmm. Now, when I'm in the context like you are in, in Costa Rica, it's easier for me just to disregard. I remember I was basically... The last time I was on Yap, I was out there with my wife and my kids. And the people, we had a group from the church, uh, the Yappies local church at our house for a Sunday afternoon. And I told them, I said, you know, there's an event down here in the village that I need to go to. And it's late in the afternoon, so I'm not going to worry about it. But I will, I will probably leave before you do. Well, it came about 4.30, and people said, well, aren't you going to go? Aren't you going to go? And these were some of the missionaries that were part of this this group. And I said, well, you know, it's, it's the Appies. I'm not going to go. This is just local time. So finally, about 5 o'clock, I left. And they'd said it was going to start at 2.30. And so I got down at 5 o'clock, and I walked in, and the man who was in charge said, oh, no, you're just on time. Oh, we haven't started yet. We're waiting for so-and-so. And that's the way it is. They wait for people to come. They're not in a hurry. And, and they want to make sure the right people are there. The relationship is so much more important than the time. Mm -hmm. And so in, in understanding that and the event, they won't stop until they're done. You know, right. it doesn't matter what time they start. It doesn't matter what time they end. It's all about relationship. And so it's a very different set of, well, I guess... Our time consciousness in our own culture is about relationship also, mm -hmm. because we know that people will be expecting us to be there at a particular time. And if they're not, we know they're going to be unhappy with us and they're going to be disappointed. So in both situations, it is about relationship, mm -hmm. but very different cultural expectations. You know, it's one of the most fascinating experience for me. We've, for several years, taken mission teams from Costa Rica to the United States on mission trips. We've been to Ashley's church in Shreveport. We've done hurricane relief and tornado relief and, and that sort of thing and in the communities where there are churches that serve alongside us in Costa Rica. When volunteer teams come here and we go to church on Sunday morning, a lot of the comments that I hear after worship is, wow, that was amazing. I can't believe that was two and a half hours. It didn't seem like it. It was wonderful just to feel how the spirit was moving and all that kinds of stuff. They love the sort of the freedom in the worship services here. When I take teams from here to the United States and we go to church on Sunday morning to the normal, traditional 11 o'clock service, every time someone from a Costa Rican from that group will say, that was amazing. Everybody knew exactly where they were supposed to be and exactly what they were supposed to do. And they got everything into a 55 minute service. So, I mean, I love the fact that it's not about right or wrong. And you mentioned that 
in, in the book that being culturally intelligent, it's not about deciding who's right and who's wrong. It's just about learning from one another. And so if there are things that I can learn from Costa Ricans in their event-focused culture that allows for relationship to take priority over a clock, good. If there are things that Costa Ricans can learn from North Americans about honoring someone else's time and, and things like that, that's good. It doesn't mean that we're trying to change who they are. They're trying to change who we are. It's just about learning and growing. Sometimes I lead the midweek prayer service at our church here in Costa Rica that we're members of. I'm not the pastor, but he's asked me to lead it from time to time. And he'll always say, and they know that you're leading, so they'll be on time. <laughs> and and I kind of want to say, but well, no, like don't you shouldn't be changing what church is like for people just because the North American is going to be the one standing behind the podium. I'll be patient. I've been here long enough. I'll wait for people to get here. So that's a little bit of a tension for me is what's what's healthy, what's not as far as when we are learning from one another. I don't want them to put me in this place where I'm determining based on where I was born what church looks like for them. It's just a strange dynamic to be put in the middle of sometimes. You're right about that. And one of the tragic things about our history is it so oftentimes we inserted our time frame. We inserted our pattern of doing things into the churches that God enabled us to plant. This was what we were trying to work on in the Pacific with this German missionary team. They basically were clearly from Germany, and they had all of these values, but the people, local people didn't have them. And I try to emphasize in the book that the advantage for us who come from the outside is that we can learn new things. Mm -hmm. The way I put it is we can add to our repertoire culturally. You know, we don't have to do it just the way we did it at home. We can become a change. We can become different people. We can act in new ways in, in contexts like Costa Rica or like in the European context you're in, actually. It's, it's all about uh, becoming more in Christ than we are and allowing God to transform us to to have compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience wherever we are in whatever culture we're in contact with. Uh, and to do that, we have to learn to do it differently. That's the, the key. That was, that was one of the favorite lessons that I think I have learned from being with partners anywhere that we are, is that once I got past the time issue, one of the things that I think it Pastor Majorard in Haiti said to me was the most important person, even though you have a meeting later this afternoon, the most important person is the person in front of you right now and make that person feel like the most important person. And that's what Jesus did. He, no matter where he had to go or what he had to do, when when he was going to heal the the mayor's daughter uh, and had a crowd around him, when the lady reached through the crowd and touched the hem of his coat, he stopped and he listened to her story. He talked to her. And the most important person was the person standing in front of him right then. And so I think that's the lesson that has been taught to me through time is that Whoever is standing in front of me right now, Will Sherwood, you're the most important people in, right now <laughs> to be present with you. And I, I think one of the points that you made in your book, probably your, your central thesis of your book, was that uh, the Bible speaks to all people in all cultures that Jesus is the faithful example of divine love in relationships and, and in communication. And that's 
what I've taken and learned that Jesus was present, fully present with who was with him. And if I can learn that from each culture that I'm in, that's what they seem to be teaching me. That's wonderful. And I think that's really the key for all of us in our life journey to recognize that uh, when we're like Christ, then we, we really are learning how to respond in new ways beyond the limitations of the culture that we are in. You know, in my own personal journey, I used to think that culture was neutral. But then um, I um, had this experience of reading Marxist anthropologists, and they basically were very critical of Western cultures. Well, I thought if the Marxist can be critical, maybe I as a Christian can be critical too. And so I began to look at this, and I thought, you know, as I reread the scripture, um, you know, I, I read this passage in Romans. It was so powerful. It says, God has given all of us over to our prisons of disobedience so he might have mercy on us all. And then he goes on in Romans 12, 1 and 2. Therefore, in view of God's mercy, I plead with you, present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable, and pleasing to God, which is your reasonable service. And don't be conformed to your world, but be transformed by renewing of your mind in Christ Jesus. When I really discovered that, that it changed my whole attitude about culture. I like to talk about culture as our palace and our prison. We can't get along without it. We really need the culture that we have. It provides all the structures and support that we need to be the people of God. But at the same time, it can imprison us. And we only think about our own way. And when we make my way the only way and my way the right way, then we're in trouble because uh, as you both have experienced, my way is not the right way in Costa Rica or in uh, the the countries that you're working with, the Russians and Europeans that you're with now. I mean, it's really the way of Christ is what we want to have wherever we are. Well, and I was going to say, too, I think it, there something clicked for me at some point because growing up in the Western church, believing fully that the Great Commission was for Americans to go out and to preach the gospel, go make disciples. That that was our call to the rest of the world, that we were going out to the rest of the world. Never took into account that, oh, wait, Mexicans are also reading the Great Commission. Haitians are also reading the Great Commission. Romanians are reading the Great Commission. Everyone who is reading the Bible is reading the Great Commission. And so what does it mean for each of us to go into the world? What does it mean for each of us to go make disciples? And I think the the first time that that finally became clear to me was when I was able to learn enough of the language to understand sitting in a Bible study in a different language and hearing them discuss the scriptures in a completely different way than I had discussed scriptures. And it was like, what in the world? Jesus, you speak to everyone, of course. And it was this huge light bulb moment of, wow, yes, we're all called to go and make disciples. Yes. You know, I that's a wonderful insight. And and I, I resonate with that completely. One of the things that I've enjoyed most about my life has been sitting in churches with people from different cultures and listen to them read the same scriptures that I have read and see things in it that I never dreamed that I could see. It's such a beautiful thing. And seeing truth, profound truth. And so uh, you're, you're right. That's, that's one of the marvels of having this opportunity to be the church. And I think for, for you, well, taking people across cultures, uh, you can see that as well. That's a great thing. And so uh, 
the short-term mission trips allow people to have this kind of experience where they, they hear others thinking about Christ, thinking about the gospel, reflecting on it in different kind of ways. And I think related to that, you know, when we look at the state of the church in the West right now, and maybe not in its finest hour, it's sort of counterintuitive that the typical missionary movement is from the West out to the rest of the world to be obedient to the Great Commission and to Acts 1-8, to be Christ's witnesses to the ends of the earth. But I almost feel like my hope in that is it's fine. The more people that can go out from those places that have particularly been where power and influence have sat, can go out into the world maybe thinking we're going to share things with other people, get there and realize, oh, we need to be hearing this from them and changing that dynamic. So potentially could what saves the church in the West be the fact that we're sending people from the church in the West to the to the developing world, to the global South, to whatever you want to call it, to be in relationship thinking it's because we have what they need, realizing when we get there, this is what we need. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yes, I agree. You know, it's it's interesting. In my lifetime, I'm an old guy now, but I've seen a significant shift in mission. <laughs> and really, in in the years when I first got involved in the first draft of this book, Ministering Cross-Culturally, my framework was mission two, mission to the world, as you've just described. But in the, the last draft of the book, I really refocused it on mission with. How do we work with the global church? How do we work as partners in the global church? It's no longer mission to, it's mission with. And, you know, as we do that, then we learn from them and they learn from us. And we together become the people of God on mission to people that don't know him. And I think that's really the beauty of today. And I feel that unabashedly from your book. And every week when I have my sort of orientation time with the teams that come down here, one of the things that I'll say to them when I'm talking about how important it is for us to see the people around us. It's easy not to see them, but we have to see them. That's what Jesus did. He saw the people around him and ministered to them. And I'll say to them, you can be in ministry at people without seeing them. You can be in ministry to people without seeing them, but you cannot be in ministry with people unless you see them. I always get really excited when I read someone who can put into words things that I've felt and known to be true, but just haven't figured out the right way to express them. And when you talk about that, that being in ministry or mission with rather than to or for or at, that's it. That's just so crucial to the health of our missional relationship. Well, to God be the glory for that. You know, I I see that. This is really God working among us, God leading us to begin to understand his vision and his mission for us as a church. It's the body of Christ, the whole body. So we have this privilege of being part of the whole body when we get out of our own little cocoon and we step off into the other one and we do it with them instead of to them. That's great. So you mentioned the first edition of Ministering Cross-Culturally. I think I have in my hand the third edition I'd like to know, are there things in 2023 on the the church landscape, the cultural landscape, whatever, that you think, okay, so if the editors call and they want a fourth edition, here are the things that have shifted from the last time we talked about this stuff. Is there anything going on now that 
that you're excited to see and think people need to to be thinking about? Are there things that you're more concerned about than you were, you know, when the third edition came out? Do you think about it that way? I'm just wondering because, I mean, I feel like the conversations I'm having with people in 2023 who are coming to Costa Rica to spend time with us are way different from the conversations I was having with them in 2003 when we got started. Things are changing. Well, you know, it's interesting. I would probably focus more on this notion of mission with. I have some of it in there, but it's much more central to my thinking today than it was even when we did that edition. And that's not that long ago, you know, that's, that really is, is a lot of my current thinking. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just have published a more academic book with Baker Bookhouse called Teamwork Cross-Culturally. And this particular book is not written for the layperson who's on mission. It's written for the missionary mm-hmm. because it's talking about how we, at one, when we want to do mission with, how we work together with other people from different places. And so in that particular book, I spend a significant amount of time looking at how our thinking gets so often distorted by our sense that, okay, we're, we're the ones. We're the ones that are supposed to do this. And, and you know, it's not just us. I have a, a chapter in the book by a, a team, a couple that are working uh, in, the, in Turkey, actually. They, they've been there. They don't use the name in the book. But, and they're there basically to equip teams from a Pentecostal mission to go all across Central Asia. And they come from South America. They come from Europe. They come from the United States. They come from Canada. They come from Africa. And because they're from such different places, they all come with their own ideas about how we should do this. And they think the way we did it at home was the best way. And of course, that gets in the way. Because if you're going to be in mission with somebody from Paraguay, for example, and somebody from Italy, they don't have the same culture at all. And how do they, from different cultural backgrounds, work together as a team trying to reach people in Kazakhstan? And so that kind of challenge is one that we're all facing today. But the principles in ministering cross-culturally are really relevant to this. Mm-hmm. Because as we just look at the, the fundamental values that we have here, time and event, how different are the values about time and event in Paraguay mm-hmm. from what they are in Italy or from what they are in Canada? Uh, if you have people on a team and they're from all those different places, they're going to have different values about time. They're going to have different values about running a meeting. They're going to have different values about how we decide who is a leader if one is going to be a leader. How does a team work together? All of those questions are challenging for us. And, and you know, in your context where you, you have a pretty regular pattern between churches and the Costa Ricans that you're in, uh, if, you, if you basically work that network, you become familiar with both sides. But the people themselves... They don't really. They they don't know how to engage somebody from a radically different culture from the one that they come from, mm-hmm. and so. Uh, but you know, this little book, ministering cross culturally, gives you a series of questions mm-hmm. that you can ask, and you can begin to explore our differences, and we can basically talk about them, and that's when we begin to understand one another. And so, uh, for people who don't have any academic background, ministering cross culturally is written for them uh, and is so they can grasp this and understand that these variations occur everywhere with all kinds of people that we might encounter. Um, But in terms of 
when we really start mobilizing teams, then we have to think about how do we help the team to catch this vision and how do they work? Well, I was just thinking, in, in season one, we introduced our listeners to uh, cr- cultural intelligence and cultural empathy. We had two experts, if you will, come on to talk about what cultural intelligence is and how we could, uh, as a mission, I'm a missions pastor at a local church in Louisiana. So how do I train up my mission teams as they're going out to spend time and abide with our mission partners wherever they're at around the world? How can I train them to be more culturally intelligent? Uh, We had another, uh, Dr. Julie Dodge came on to talk about cultural empathy and how we can passionate and empathetic to those that are different than we are. And a term that you use in the book is cultural blindness, how we need to know that we are culturally blind and that makes us ineffective communicators um, when we're in a different context and how we assume problems lie with other people rather than problems lying in ourselves and how we can come about with um, humility so that we can go into a context and be humble and and see others as a part of a a mutually beneficial relationship instead of us being one-sided and coming in like we have all the answers and we have all the fix-it things. Do you want to talk a little bit more about how you would describe cultural blindness? Well, you know, it's interesting. The theme of blindness you find throughout the scriptures. And it, Jesus heals a blind man. Okay, that's a marvelous thing. But he uses that to teach the Pharisees that they're blind, that this blindness is something that is a blindness spiritually. It's a blindness to what God is doing. Uh, and so blindness is a biblical metaphor that's incredibly useful and helpful. Uh, I'm doing a, a deep study right now of the book of Isaiah, particularly Isaiah 40 to 55. And in that, this prophet repeats over and over again the fact that you, you, you Hebrew, you Jewish people, you people from Judah, you just don't get it. You know, you can't see what God is doing. You don't believe what God is doing. And so I think about blindness is, first of all, it's a lack of faith. We're not really trusting God when we don't know what's going on, and we're pretty sure we know what's going on. You know, one of the Proverbs says, when you think you know you're right, get wisdom. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I, I think that's so powerful. And, and typically, that's the problem. We think we know we're right. We think that we know the solution. We think that we have the right way of doing things. And so anytime we think about my way, that's a possession that we just don't own. Really, it, we want it to be God's way, not my way. Uh, we want it to be in, in God's purpose, not my purpose. And yet, we have songs can do it my way in our culture uh, and, and get it get it my way. All of that's just a part of the theme of American culture. Uh, and it's a distortion of everything that we know in Christ. And so blindness comes down to this sense that I make false assumptions about others and I make false assumptions about what's happening to me uh, instead of listening and trying to understand what God is doing and then listening and to see how God wants us to work in the Spirit. It's interesting to me that in the Scriptures, it always says that we cannot see God, but it always talks about listening to God. We can hear God. We can hear the Spirit. If we listen to God, God speaks to us in our spirits as we listen. Though we can't see, we can hear. And somehow God has emphasized that for us, that we hear from His Word, we hear from His Spirit, and we hear from people that we're ministering to. 
uh, listening to people to me is the most powerful tool that we can have. And once we listen and we try to figure out, to me, my most important question I, I think you can ask is, can you help me understand this? The question, can you help, puts the purpose on them. They're, you're asking for a favor. And then help me understand means I don't know what's going on. Can you help me see what's going on here? And so you honor the person by asking for help. And then you basically put yourself below by saying, help me understand because I don't understand. Uh, and and that's a powerful tool to use in our cross-cultural relationships and our team relationships. Because if we are really listening to one another, listening to the Holy Spirit, trying to understand then we just open the door for God to speak to us. We open the door for others to speak to us. And once we hear from them, then we, we're able to respond. So I think I can tie all of this together. You, you just said a second ago that one of the symptoms of cultural blindness is it leads us to assuming that we know what's best for everybody or what they need, which reminded me of... Ashley and I recently got to talk to Brian Fickert on The Broken Banquet. And in his new book, Becoming Whole, the kind of subtitle of the book is basically how the American dream is not the answer for the whole world. It wasn't really even the answer for us, but that's a whole nother story. But it's this it's sort of challenging the notion that, that that's what everybody needs is the American dream. It's unfettered capitalism and all that kind of stuff. And towards the end of ministering cross-culturally, and now, so this was written, and I don't know which edition this originally appeared in, but potentially you wrote this 20 or so years ago. Transforming a society does not mean moving people from their prison into ours, <laughs> but rather helping them to know Christ and be transformed personally and communally into people and communities of the Spirit. When I read that, when you talked about not moving people from their prison into our prison, how could that not be more for, of a foreshadowing of becoming whole and not trying to impose what we think is the best thing for us on the rest of the world? Mm -hmm. The point is to know them and to, like you said, become a community in the spirit. Thank you, Will. I, I'm glad that you captured that. That really is a key idea that I feel so strongly about. We, we want to move people into our prison, but we don't recognize it as a prison. And uh, it's really, all of our cultures are like that. So I'm grateful for the life experience that God has given to us, the three of us. We've, we've been out of that. We have learned to accept others. We've learned to live in relationship with them. And still, I appreciate your story, Will, about you and your wife, because that's a challenge that everyone faces. I can't delete what's in my mind. I can't delete what I've learned growing up, but I can surrender it. Right. You know, I, I can surrender it. And that's really what it's about, surrendering to Christ and him working in us and through us to make us his servants wherever we are. Mm -hmm. So I love your thought. I think another another aha moment that I had in your book was uh, when you wrote about Paul and how Paul was, he was a Roman citizen, but of course he was also a Pharisee. He knew the Hebrew prophets. He knew the culture, the Israelite culture. But when he set out to go on these missionary journeys, he knew that he had to change the language, change the philosophy of how he preached and that 
to a Greek culture, he had to use verbal, abstract, rational thinking as opposed to concrete or emotional thinking of the Hebrews. He had to change the way that he presented the story so that it would be well understood. And how much I've learned by being in other cultures of other people that they are able to teach me things through a different lens, a different story that I can somehow take back to present the story in a different way to to the people that I'm with in Louisiana that ends up bringing a more holistic picture of what the gospel message is. Yeah, I can see that, that um, when, when we just become more sensitive to people and who they are, then we don't make the mistake of coming into our world and saying, well, these people are a bunch of jerks, you know, I, I really uh, see their blindness and I don't can't understand why they're this way. Our people are like everyone. They basically are, grew up in a culture. They've been wired in this way by their relationships, by everything they've been taught. And we, we need the same compassion here that we would have anywhere. One of my biggest mistakes when I came back from Micronesia the first time was I was very judgmental of American culture. And then one day the Lord just spoke to me and said, Sherwood, you can go all the way around the world and you can love these people that are walking around in loincloths and grass skirts, and you don't don't judge and condemn them, but you condemn the people in your home church. And I thought, yeah, this is foolish. And Lord, I, I repent. I, I just understand we all our cultural people. And, because, and people are not privileged to walk where you and I have all walked. I mean, all of us have been able to go places and engage with people and learn from them and see God, God at work in their worlds. And many, many, many of our people in our home churches just have never had that privilege. Mm -hmm. That's the beauty of short-term mission, to give them just a small taste and process it with them and listen to them and hear how they understood it and dialogue with them about things that they didn't understand. It really has the potential for bringing dramatic change at home as well as abroad. And I think that's the joy of being involved in mission. That's always my favorite question that we get to ask when we're interviewing missionaries who are in the field is when we think about this table imagery and how all of us have been called to sit at Jesus's table, what are you most excited about your brothers and sisters in the community where you're serving, sharing with everyone else who's at the table? And it just as a recognition that there's so much value in how God has revealed himself to all of his creation, but in different and distinct ways. And Ashley's in Louisiana. I mean, I'm sure you can make a pretty terrible attempt at gumbo that just has no flavor or one flavor. But what makes it so delicious is all the different flavors that get added to it. And how could you not want that? I just can't, I can't get my head around, I mean, I guess I can kind of imagine because it's part, it's a big part of our story is wanting to have this sort of monolithic image and understanding of who, who God is, what church is, what faith is. And what a shame if that comes at the expense of acknowledging all of these other people who are also at the table with us with incredible things to share, that we need to hear and to be challenged by and to grow from. That's the most exciting thing about being alive for me is learning from people who are different from me. And I, I, I want our ministry to be a part of that for people. 
we just finished building a church. We've partnered with a community that's about 45 minutes away from here, kind of out in the country, new church start. They reached out to us. And so in the first part of this year, we helped them build a sanctuary. I mean, that's it's exciting. It's exciting that they're excited. They're really looking forward to having worship in something other than a you know a tin shack that might fall over at any moment and all that kind of stuff. But what's really exciting when I think back over the last eight months is the people who had never been here before and got to worship with their brothers and sisters here in ways that they've never seen or done worship before. They got to pray with them in ways that are different from what they've experienced before. They spent time with people who speak a language that's different from the people they're usually spending time with. And all of those things, that's the whole point. And it gets to the to the seeing people and hearing people and being humble while doing those things. I agree with you, Will. I think that building projects uh, are have a nice end, something you can see you've accomplished. But the the real end is that in this process, we're building a people of God. We're getting people to work together. We're getting people to take responsibility with each other and for each other. And and as we do that working together, and as we learn from each other, as you've just shared so eloquently, then we are more the body of Christ. Uh, and it's really in doing tasks like this that we actually get to know one another and we engage in ways that we would not otherwise. I'm sure if there are folks who came to help you in that building project from the U.S., that that was a wonderfully, radically different experience for them. And not just a building, but rather an experience. And and probably for those of you and, and us that are coordinating things like that, we have the wonderful opportunity of helping to be a broker, to help each of them to understand each other and to encourage one another. Uh, and in that, discipling them, helping them grow in their relationship with Christ. So uh, I didn't always think that way about building projects, but... I was reminded of this when I've been reading the book of Exodus and see how much time is spent on building the tabernacle. And I realized that building the tabernacle had nothing to do with the building, it had everything to do with getting the people to work together. I'm going to write that down. God used this to make them a people of God and to teach them freedom and responsibility. You know, that's really the key. They were free. They were free from slavery. But they had a responsibility to work together and and a pl- to make a place make a place where they could be in the presence of God. Thank you, Sherwood, for summing all of that up so very well. The final thing that I had highlighted in your book was our goal must be to build up the unity and fellowship of the body of Christ, and to do that, our role is to be a servant. Um, so, thank you for this book. Thank you for being with us today to explore it in depth. I know it's been one of Will's favorite days ever, and uh, and it surely has been one of mine too. So thank you so much for being with us on the Broken Banquet Podcast. We really appreciate your time. Thank you, Ashley. It's been my joy to be with you. Thank you, Will. Uh, It's a pleasure to meet you both. You as well. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you. You've been listening to The Broken Banquet, a podcast by Will Bailey and Ashley Goad. Music provided by Irene and the Sleepers. Join us next week for another episode. He's prepared the table. All things are ready. Come to the feast.